Dear God, we thank you again. We mm. come before your throne. Mm. We say, Lord, our honor and power belong to you. Mm -hmm. We just lift our hands, Lord, because without you, we are nothing. We say, search our hearts, Lord, and cleanse us. Cleanse us from our iniquities, Lord. We say, Father, we just open our hearts to you. We love you, Lord. We trust you. You sustain us, Lord, from day to day. You bless us on our way, Lord, as we got here today. We say, holy is your name, God. Jesus, holy Jesus. is your name. Jesus. We just open our hearts now, and we are about to receive your word. May we believe it, Lord, embrace it, and live it. For these are many blessings and eyes in the name of all God's people say. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We are continuing uh, a series of messages that we began uh, right after Easter, and we'll continue here through uh, much of the summer, uh, spring and summer here, uh, entitled Salt and Light. It's a series of messages on the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount is located in your Bible in the first book of the New Testament, uh, the Gospel of Matthew. So if you've got a Bible, you can do that, or if you don't have, you can take hold of the Bible located in front of you and kind of go two-thirds of the way back in the book, uh, because the Old Testament takes about the first two-thirds, and then find Matthew and go to Matthew and look for the number five, and you'll find Matthew chapter five, and the Sermon on the Mount there is Matthew five, six, and seven, and so that's what we're going to be uh, looking through here uh, for these next months. And so... It's called the Sermon on the Mount. If you look in 5.1, it says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to a mountainside and sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. So it's taking place contextually up on a mountainside where Jesus is there speaking to crowds, uh, both religious folks and folks that are not really religious at all. And uh, Jesus loves to uh, minister and speak to, to both folks. So uh, here this morning, uh, we may have been in church a really long time, or maybe this is the first time in church in a long time, or first time ever, but God desires to speak to us today out of his word because he is the living word. So as we come to the Sermon on the Mount, um, there's, a, there's a message here. Jesus' message in, is inviting us to be discipled, and the word disciple means one who learns. So we're invited to learn what it means to live into the blessed and good life of his kingdom. So we looked at the Beatitudes uh, back in Lenten time. That's kind of how to live that blessed life. And now we're learning and discovering as a disciple of Jesus what it means to live the good life, um, you know, which is something that we'd all like to live. Um, but I want us to notice something really important here as we kind of enter into the word today. The first condition for being a disciple is to stop being anonymous, an anonymous member of the multitude and rather be one who is continually listening for the voice of the Lord. You're going to see it again this morning uh, in the word that I'm bringing, and you see it repeated throughout the Sermon on the Mount. This phrase, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And when, I, when you think about that, I want you to think about, because in the Greek it becomes really clear, and in, in our language it's not so clear because we don't have singular and plural use, but he says, now you have heard it said, but I say to you, 
Okay? So in this context of discipleship, we need to move out of that even inner space, that mental space. Well, then I'm just, I'm just, you know, I'm part of a crowd here this morning, but we're not simply part of a crowd, and Jesus isn't simply speaking to a crowd, because when it says, you know, you've heard it said, but I say to you, the you is singular there. He says to you, singular. He's not, not just speaking to the crowd. Now it suddenly becomes Jesus face to face with you. So I am saying to you, and obedience means to listen intentionally and then to willingly do what he says. That's the, the root words of obedience. Obedience, discipleship, means listening and learning. It means, and obedience means to listen to him and then do what he says. So obedience is not only listening and it's not only doing it's the two of those things married together. All right, a couple of other quick things. Remember, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus moves from rules and regulations to principles concerning motive and attitude. He digs deep into our heart. Um, the examples that he gives, including the example we're going to be looking at this morning, are examples that he gives that get at even deeper issues of our heart. He's not, you know, I would say Jesus is after the whole enchilada. He's not just after just a little piece of who we are. He's after our full allegiance. And so, um, you know, the Pharisees and the scribes, the people, the teachers of the law, they were interested in sort of these rules and regulations and somehow making themselves righteous enough to be acceptable to God. But again, the Christian message is this. There's nothing that we can do to make ourselves acceptable to God. We can keep all the rules and regulations as perfectly as we think we're able to, and it still will never be good enough because we will not be able to do it perfectly. But rather, Jesus is after our heart, after a change of heart, He's after writing his word, his life, his covenant upon our hearts and transforming us from the inside out. Transformation is inside out. And it begins with these principles that deal with our motive and our attitude, all right? From a righteous destination to a journey towards a righteous destiny. See, again, the Pharisees and the scribes, the teachers of the law, they thought, we can do this. We can do this in our own strength. We can live this perfectly. We'll just keep erecting more rules and regulations to protect the rules and regulations we already have. And if we do that, we won't miss out. We will do it perfectly. But Jesus disabuses us of that notion saying, there's nothing that you're going to do. You are not going to be able to arrive. You are never going to arrive at that perfect righteous destination. You are always going to be in process in a journey towards a righteous destiny. For all of us, there's a gap between where we are and where we long to be, and Jesus is walking with us to close that gap. Third, this moves us from sin management to discovering and following God's will. Because if you're all about the rules and regulations, then it becomes about managing my sin. Well, Jesus isn't interested in us just simply managing our sin. He's actually interested in us following his will. It, it becomes not simply these do's and don'ts, though those are certainly a part of this, however, in, in the following of God's will, but it's a proactive, positive movement in our life towards pursuit 
of his will and his purposes for us. Do you understand this? There's a, this is a clear, I, I mean, I wanna, I, I'm, I'm hammering on this just a little bit again because I want us to understand the context of what Jesus is speaking about here. Because it would be easy to kind of look at this and go, oh, Jesus is just laying down new legalism, you know, a new set of, you know, that, that exceeds, and he says, you know, my lo- exceeds that of the, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes. But how do we do that? Well, the only way that we can do that is through surrender and allegiance to him. It always comes back to him. It's Jesus in us. All right? Well, that's going to certainly be true in the context of the message here this morning. All right. So I've entitled the message, True Oneness. True Oneness. And our key scripture here is from Matthew chapter 5, 31 to 32. This is the, this is the scripture we're looking at in our ongoing study on the Sermon on the Mount. So got your Bible, look at it with me, or you can look up on the screen, and you can see the verses uh, there typed out for you. It has been said, or again, you have heard it said, all of you, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, singular, again, back to you specific, to us specifically, that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. All right, now, I'd like to invite you over for a moment to Matthew chapter 19 as well, because we're going to be looking at another passage in our gospel, the gospel of Matthew, that speaks of this very same issue. All right, so go over to Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 to 11. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. So again, Jesus is in the context of a large crowd. You know, his, his preaching continues on in, in various locations and in various ways. So some Pharisees came to test him. So these are the guys who are doing the law, and they come to test him, and they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Okay, now... There's a cultural context here to both what Jesus shares in the Sermon on the Mount and here in Matthew 19. So there are two schools of thought, and we're going to get to it in a moment in Deuteronomy chapter 24. There's some some mosaic law that's there. And there are two schools of thought, two rabbis uh, and their followers that have kind of kind of uh, developed over the years, and they've developed these two very different strains of thought. So the Hillel school of rabbis... Um, they believed, and, and there's some very technical things about the Hebrew in Deuteronomy 24, which we don't have time to unpack this morning, but they said, you know, most, for any cause, they, they believed that divorce could be for any reason whatsoever, any cause at all. And again, in a patriarchal culture where men basically had all of the rights and women were, you know, little more than, than, than property, uh, very little more than property, uh, a man could divorce his wife if she burnt his toast in the morning. Or if maybe with age, she had some wrinkles and her body shape changed a little bit. He could say, well, I'm no longer pleased with you and just give her a certificate of divorce and she was gone. Now, in that, in that position, in that culture, a woman who was divorced had really, there was very little options. If there was a generous relative that might bring her under his covering, 
um, that would be the very best possible scenario. Perhaps somebody else would come along and marry, but, but she would be known as somehow damaged goods. I mean, you know, well, if she burnt the toast of the last guy, she might burn my toast. And, and typically, we're treated in pretty abusive kinds of ways. Or in order simply to maintain livelihood, she might have to become a prostitute. So, so there were very limited options. And so, so there was this school of thought that, well, you can just divorce for any reason whatsoever. Now, there was another group, the Shemites, who followed um, Shemamiah, who's another uh, Jewish uh, rabbi, who held to a very close exception, and that was only the exception of adultery. And again, depending on how you read Deuteronomy 24, that was the only exception whatsoever if they were caught in adultery. Now, interestingly enough, and this is where things get dicey, because in the Old Testament... The punishment for adultery was what? It was stoning. It was death. So then you were no longer married when your spouse is dead. Okay? So, um, so you know, but, but then there was some massaging around that. And so, again, it became this whole... So there was just lots and lots of... So this is the context into which Jesus is speaking. And the Pharisees are trying to catch him. They're always trying to do this. Remember, they're always trying to catch Jesus, you know, to make him say something that's going to get somebody mad, all right? Whether it's one religious group or another, or the Romans, or, you know, they're always just trying to get Jesus into trouble, and somehow, he always manages to thread the needle and kind of go right down, and he, and he kind of goes right past these arguments. Look at what he says. This is so interesting. He says, well, haven't you read talking to the religious folk who probably have read, but he's just reminding, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together let no one separate. Well, why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied, well, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And the disciples said, well, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. And Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only to those to whom it has been given. It's a hard word. So, so he's looking around, he's talking to a crowd of people, and, 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 and this divorce, only those who have legitimately been divorced, if you haven't been, then you're in adult. You know, so he's looking at this crowd of folks, and there's a lot of people, because there's been a lot of followers. Hillel School has taken over, so there's a lot of burnt toast divorces out there. And Jesus is saying, well, you actually aren't divorced. You weren't ever divorced. And the disciples go, well, wait a minute. Well, maybe it's better not to get married at all. And Jesus says, well, you know, this is a hard thing, but, but to those to whom it's been given, those who receive it in their heart can hear. All right. So, well, let's, um, let's unpack this for a moment, the covenant of marriage. Let's... <laughs> particularly using this Matthew 19 scripture for a moment. And we're going to circle back to the Matthew 5. All right, but, but let's, let's just take a look at what Jesus is saying here about marriage. All right, so the covenant of marriage. First of all, the purpose. I want us to notice the purpose of marriage. 
Then God said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness. So he's going, Jesus goes back to the original texts back in the book of Genesis. And he comes back to the original intention behind marriage. So here's what I want to offer to you this morning. Marriage is a reflection of God who lives in eternal covenantal community with himself. The Jewish term for marriage was kedushin. Kedushin means sanctification or consecration, describing something that is totally dedicated and surrendered to God. Marriage calls one to be consecrated to one another and together to God. Marriage is not only given to make us happy, but it's given to make us holy. That is true of all relationships. So if you're single this morning, you can't sit back and go, well, this isn't about me. Because it is about you. It's about all of us, anybody who is in relationship with anyone. And if you're here this morning and you're breathing, you're in a relationship with somebody. Okay? But for our context this morning, it's okay to specifically use the example of marriage. Marriage is not just to make us happy. It is to make us holy. Now, I've shared this before. You know, I've been married. I'm coming up on 32 years on June 4th of marriage to my beloved wife who's back in the nursery today. Yeah, thank you. She is uh, she's doing her part with the big house babies. And I think I've shared this with many of you before, but if you haven't heard it, when we got married 32 years ago, my wife just did not like win the best prize at the fair. Okay? I was not the best prize. All right? I had a lot of stuff. I had a lot of things going on that needed growth and development. And I got married, and a year into our marriage, I realized, well, it probably didn't even take a year, it probably took about a week, and a month at maximum, I realized that I had this horrific, I mean, truly, I, I still remember, I mean, I just remember having this sudden awareness that I was the most selfish human being that ever had walked the face of the earth. I really did. That's the God's honest truth. I realized I'm the most selfish person that ever walked the face of the earth. I needed to be consecrated and sanctified. And guess what? Marriage is a marvelous catalyst for that taking place. It really is. It really is. And my wife is a beautiful, patient, wonderful. And she said, now, she told me this morning, I told her, I'm going to tell some stuff. And she says, now, just, just be sure to tell the whole story. I said, I will. I will tell them that I married a perfect woman. <laughs> she said, no, that's exactly what I don't want you to say. She had her stuff, and I had my stuff. And then we put our stuff together. And then it gets really fun. <laughs> right? Come on. We're just talking truth. So marriage is, you know, it's not this unending bliss. You know, it's the tipping toe. It's not through the tulips. It's through the roses and those thorns start pricking. Right? Okay. So we have some options then with what we do with that. right? And the invitation is, and, and, and I've come to discover and believe that Ephesians 5.21 is sort of the, I think it's just the key text for all relationships, and that is submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So here's the call, the invitation then in the purpose of marriage is to begin to submit to one another. And as you submit to one another out of reverence, out of submission for Christ, you're moving closer to one another and closer to him. Powerful. All right. 
So here's some principles. We're going to have to go through these quickly. First of all, covenantal. Marriage is covenantal. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bone, and flesh of my flesh shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is not a contract. Marriage isn't a contract. It's not a legal document simply that you get signed, and then now I'm in this contractual relationship, and if somebody, this is a covenant. This is, there is a deepness about that covenant. It is an unconditional, selfless commitment to seek the well-being of the other person. That's what covenant's about. That's what God does with us, and that's what we're called to do with one another. It's much more than a contract. It's a covenant. We don't get that so much in our current day and age, but this is the call of the Lord. It's also complementary. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. Now, I know that there's a lot of dust in the air right now, and there's a lot of dust, and it's sort of in the cultural and political realm of things, but in the biblical realm, there really is no dust. There just isn't. Because marriage is the complementary relationship between a man and a woman, a male and a female. Everything from the way we're created physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and all of those things. Now, now um, same-sex marriages or same-sex relationships, that's not, you know, we're, I'm, I'm not going to have that the focus of our conversation here this morning. That's a, a topic for another day. What I want to bring to us in the context of this message on true oneness and the covenant of marriage is that according to the scripture, marriage is between a man and a woman. It's just, it's, it's not, that part isn't actually debatable. The other pieces related to how folks choose to live together with one another in a secular society such as ours, that's another conversation that we can have on another day. But marriage, the covenant of marriage in true oneness, happens between a man and woman who bring their complimentary thing. And trust me, it is complimentary. My wife, she's, she's a compliment to me on so many different levels. Physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, she's a compliment to me. She's very different to me. She's, you know, guys, you understand, all I have to do is say the mystery and every guy gets it, okay? Right? It's just the mystery. It's a wonder. I wonder what she might be thinking right now. <laughs> All right? It's a beautiful thing. But it is complimentary. All right. Exclusive. All right? So the wife, I love this in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband in the same way. The husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. There's an exclusiveness about this male and female coming together, becoming one flesh. When you become one flesh with another person, there is no other flesh involved. You, this is now yours. I love that. I love that. I love to tell folks when they're getting married, I love to tell husbands, your wife's body, her, she, she's, that's yours now. And wife, your husband's body, it's yours now. And all of it's wonder, all right? It's going to look fabulous on the wedding day, and, you know, there'll be other Mondays, you know, but it's all right. It's yours, because, and it's exclusively yours. There's an exclusiveness about marriage. There's no, that's where polygamy is not true marriage, okay? Back to the original definitions here that we're looking at 
in the texts, all right? And finally, it's intended to be permanent. That is why a man leaves his mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. They are united to one another. There is a cleaving that happens. Okay? All right. But there are problems that develop. Anybody, you know, some of you, there's, there's challenges. And some of you have got stories of those challenges. And I'm profoundly aware as a pastor this morning, and I know a lot of your lives, and I know challenges that you've faced, and I know that there are those out here this morning who have experienced divorce and, 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 the, and the trials and challenges of all of that. So you, even better than I, know some of the challenges that are there. But let's, let's just talk about these problems really quickly. Well, why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Well, now we've got to come back to the, the original texts here again. Deuteronomy 24.1, that's what there's referencing here, both in Matthew 5 and in 19. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and this is where those two schools of thought that we talked about, what does that something indecent mean? And he writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her and sends her from his house. Well, there's another text that's less commonly referenced about divorce, um, separation and divorce in the Old Testament as well, and that's in uh, Exodus 21, 10 and 11. If he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. If he doesn't provide her with these three things, she's to go free without any payment of money. So there was this, the, the, our common uh, consistent marriage vows are around these. To love, honor, and keep is the old, you know, speaks of these things. If, if these things are not held, then there is this free, you know, there's, there's this uh, place apparently given in, the, uh, in Exodus for there to be the possibility of divorce. So, so it looks at things from adultery, emotional, physical neglect, abandonment, abuse, those kinds of things in the context, in the framework here. But Jesus isn't simply looking for a new set of rules to, to, to place over them. He's going after heart issues. And here in Matthew 19, he, he reflects a couple of those. He talks about, first of all, hardness of heart. So as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me. Though for 40 years they saw what I did, this is why I was angry with that generation and I said, their hearts are always going astray. They've not known my ways. So I declared on my oath and my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Now, I've shared this story before. I remember exactly where I was standing. It was about a year into our marriage, maybe two, and I remember exactly where I was standing. I remember exactly what I was doing, and I remember exactly the words that came out of my mouth. And the words that came out of my mouth to my wife were this. Well, honey, that's just the way I am, and you're going to have to accept me the way I am because I can't change. And immediately, he touched me. Whoa, he touched me. Because the Lord spoke to my heart and said, oh, Son, the issue is not that you can't change. The issue is that you won't. So what are you going to do about that? This was the hardness of my heart. I've been married almost 32 years. Guess what? There's still places, there's times where I bump up against hardness of heart, and I have to once again say, Oh, God. 
have mercy on my heart. Begin to change. Work in my soul. Work in my heart. Work in me, Lord. Right? All right? Hardness of heart is what leads to unfaithfulness in whatever of those areas that we looked at. Maybe it's adultery or neglect or abuse or all of these kinds of things. There's this unfaithfulness that can take place. This is Malachi 2, 13 to 16. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and you wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? Well, it's because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You've been unfaithful to her, though she's your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God... Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. Another translation, it talks there and speaks more direct, it gives a kind of an alternate translation that just God hates divorce. And I'm, I want to tell you, having sat with folks who've walked through this, probably the only people, the only ones in the, in the universe that hate divorce as much as God does are those who have experienced and are going through divorce. They get it. Why? Because, well, let's, let's go on to this. Divorce, and again, back to, now we're full circle to Jesus' words, but, but the, the thing here is that the, the reason that divorce is, is so, so painful is that it, it severs true oneness. It comes, literally, I was doing the, the word study on this because, you know, I love words. And it comes from the, the Hebrew word karat, which means to cut off a part of the body. When you go through divorce, it's like having an amputation. Because you've been one flesh and now you're not. And once cut off, the covenant of marriage is ended and deep healing is needed and careful discernment required to determine the potential of remarriage in the future. It's not just a given thing, one way or another. And there's lots of, 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 of things that we don't have time to talk through completely this morning about. But what I do know is this. In the context of that, when you've gone through an amputation, there is deep healing that's needed. And also careful discernment moving forward. This morning, um, I've invited Bob S., who has gracefully just opened and extended his willingness to come and share. As you know, uh, Bob and uh, Jessica are um, planning to get married, and uh, Bob has experienced the pain of divorce, and he opened his heart to me, and, and, and what, I sh- what I receive, and I want to be really clear, what happens in, when, in my office stays in my office. I'm, you know, I'm not going to tell Bob's story to you, but... It was so powerful what he shared. I asked him to share just really briefly, and there's not going to be time for the full story, but just a few moments here to share a bit of his story. So just want to honor Bob for, for taking this step. That's a, a big step, people, uh, to share testimony about that. And Bob, thank you. All right. Appreciate that. All right. So I got to keep it brief. <laughs> um, I went through a divorce a number of years ago. And it wasn't something that I wanted. It wasn't something that I was looking for. But I realized that God gives us free will, and we have the choice to choose to follow him or to follow our own path. Um, And I found myself in a situation where that uncleaving had happened, and I was torn apart from my wife. And 
I needed to heal. And, I, and we have a choice at that moment to either try to rush to the world and the world's way of healing, you know, seeking comfort in the bottle or in, a, in drugs or alcohol or another woman or whatever it might be. Or we have a choice to turn to God and rest in his arms and let him do the healing and heal, our, heal us and bring us back to oneness. So I turned to God and, and sought him out, um, reading his word and prayer and fellowship with other Christians. And in that time, I had probably the most, the closest relationship with God I've ever had in my entire life. And I remember one night, and I was laying in bed and just seeking him in prayer, and I felt his arms wrap around me. And I just felt like I was floating in the air with God holding me tight and whispering in my ear, I love you so much. I think often we realize we go through times in life and we just don't feel that love from God and we just feel torn apart and broken. And God loves us so much and he just held me and made me whole again. And I think that the importance of taking that time to seek God and let him heal us. And I like your analogy of the roses because I realize we can go through life and we can choose to focus on just the rose and we'll miss the thorns and we'll get all scratched up and scarred up. Or we can choose to focus on just the thorns and we'll completely miss the beauty of the roses in our life. So it's important that we look and appreciate the roses and cherish them be cautious of those thorns. So um, it's so important in the body of Christ when our brothers and sisters, and we, we do this as a congregation because we, we believe in the covenant of marriage. And so we, we will often develop even teams of folks that will come alongside and walk with people who are experiencing difficulty and challenge. And sometimes the stories end beautifully and sometimes they end painfully there's there's pain involved in all of the stories but sometimes they end well and sometimes they they end from our perspective perhaps less well because uh, there is a a, a a separation a severing that takes place but in the midst of it all we are committed to the wholeness of people and to the, and to god coming as he did with bob with that healing grace, and that's why it's so important to, to take time to walk through and to process and to listen and to hear and, and to understand where, 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 where my heart has been hardened and not to allow a hardening or a bitterness of my own heart to develop or, or, or to simply blame the other. Or you know, It's always allowing God to work in us to bring about his wholeness in our lives. And we do that in the context of community. We need one another. And so this is a message not just for those of you who are married. It's a message for the church. It's a message for those of you that are single, for those of us that are married, to walk with those who are single because they too need to experience the beauty and the wonder and the joy of community. It will, it will look differently than the context of specific marriage relationship, but nevertheless, it can be equally as uh, or, or, or in, in alternately as developing uh, the power of, of, uh, of consecration and sanctification and development and growth. We need one another. That's why there's no lone rangers in the kingdom of God. 
because we can't do it alone. And I love what Paul says here, and this is the the last uh, scripture, and the worship team can come up. For we are members of his body for this reason. A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So here we are, full circle, back to the the full intention. Our life together, the body of Christ, we are the bride of, of Christ. We do not want to allow hardness of heart or unfaithfulness in our own heart to separate us or divide us from him. Because ultimately, that's the most important relationship that we have, is our relationship with him, and then out of that, flows our relationships with one another. And we want to experience the oneness of relationship, both in our marriages, in our friendships, in our families, in all of the contexts and the ways that God uses and does and develops relationship within us. So I am, again, I'm profoundly aware that in a a message like this, perhaps more questions emerge than answers. And I'm actually okay with that. I'm actually okay with that. And if there are things, if you are walking through something and you're struggling through something, I want you to know that the door is wide open. We as here at Bethel Christian Fellowship, our elders, our leaders, our staff, we are all ready to walk alongside of folks in the context of their lived lives, which the good, the bad, and the ugly parts of those, all right? Without condemnation. No condemnation. Now I dread. We just sang it a moment ago but with allowing the Lord to speak into our lives. And I want to, un, un, uh, without any reservation, say that here at Bethel, we believe in the covenant of marriage as a covenantal reality, as a complementary reality, as an exclusive reality, and as a permanent reality. That is, that is the, 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 the image that, we're, that we are seeking to bring into a, a, a culture and a world where, where you know, as it's been said, the, our culture is standing at the crossroads and the signposts have fallen down. We want to have a signpost before us. This is what genuine marriage looks like. So, uh, you know, as, as a pastor, my heart, I mean, you know, I got concerns about what's going on out there in the culture. But I'll tell you where, where I believe Jesus wants to really focus this in his church, in his people, let's, let's reflect him to the world with marriages that are healthy, strong, whole, growing, developing. All right? Does that sound all right to you? Hello. <laughs> all right. So wherever we're at this morning, I want us just to stand together. We're going to sing this, this old chorus, but it's a, it's a wonderful prayer because I don't want you thinking about the other people who really needed to hear this message because I needed to hear this message today and so did you. This isn't, you've heard it said, this is, but I'm saying to you this morning. So this altar is going to be open and then we're going to have a closing prayer. If you're coming to lunch at my house and you need a ride, we can provide rides. We'll get you there, no problem. And again, would love to have you join us. If you haven't been at our house in a while, if you are uh, a young adult, college student, folk, kind of that people, you're welcome. Others who are guests, we look forward to having you with us. The altar's open if you want to come. Jesus, hear our prayer today. We acknowledge and recognize before you, Lord, that 
our hearts can easily and quickly become hard. Lord Jesus, we invite you with the sword of your word to come in even today, to peel back those layers, those crusts, those scabs, the barnacles that have kind of grown up around our hearts. Tenderize us before you, Lord Jesus. We want nothing between us and you. We want to walk in full, full intimacy with you and, and Lord, full intimacy with the people around us, God. Jesus, we want to be able to walk without, without those, those walls. So God, come and, and work your work in us, we pray. We can't do this ourselves. Jesus, it's not about us trying harder. It's about us surrendering deeper. So we just want to surrender again to you. With open hands, we say, we surrender. Say, we surrender. Say, I surrender. I surrender to you again today, Jesus. And in that place of surrenderedness, now receive the benediction. I pray now that you would be filled afresh this very day with the immeasurable love of God the Father, with the irresistible mercy and grace of Jesus Christ the Son, with the inexhaustible strength and power, comfort and hope of the Holy Spirit be with you and yours. As you go from this house to yours, sent to make disciples of all nations, go with a banner of his favor over your lives. And until we gather again, either in this house or in our eternal home, I pray that his love and goodness and mercy will chase you down every day of your life. In the name of Jesus, bless, Lord, as we go now with blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen.